Episode 190 of the PJ Archive is a phone interview I did with the delightful, internationally successful British actress Jenny Agatha, who's best known for starring in films such as The Railway Children, Walkabout, Logan's Run, The Eagle Has Landed, Equus, and An American Werewolf in London and most recently for the hit BBC TV series, Call the Midwife. This interview took place in 2012, when London was hosting the Olympic Games. We started by talking about something which changed Jenny's life and career. People have absolute kind of things in their lives that kick off something that just completely changed their life, you know. Mm-hmm. Awful events, you know, like sprained ankles or, or injuries or something that turns into something else mm-hmm. and in a way my whole life has been a series of things that have actually given me opportunities i mean one could start with you know having started work with really as a child and done railway children done various things i left school which was a completely stupid decision at 17 without anything without any kind of sense of what next i just thought i was going to continue acting and in fact there were no in fact there were very very few films being made and the very lovely agent I had at the time, Penny Weston, said to me, you know, darling, you really ought to do something about, <laughs> you know, theatre perhaps, because I'd never learnt my trade. And she said there was an offer to go and play Lady Teasman School for Scandal, and that was at Farnham Rep. And it was hard, because I had never had, I'd never stood on stage, I'd never given, been given an acting role at school, ever. Mm. I liked acting in front of the camera because it was, make-believe and I could easily, I was very uninhibited, but I wasn't good, I was terrified of being on stage. So it was quite a major decision and basically the experience itself was a good one. I didn't do very well with Lady Teasel, in fact I really did really badly, I must be one of the few people that's played a comedy of that nature, a restoration comedy, and not managed to get a laugh throughout the entire Oh dear. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Because I had no, I had absolutely no stage experience, but it it kicked me into realizing that I had a, a hell of a lot to learn about the craft. I'd made this decision by this time to actually act. I hadn't given myself anything else to do, and yet I knew nothing about it, and there I was. I went on the stage, and it was terrifying being in front of an audience. And right after doing it, I was asked to do something at Hampstead, which was a modern play, and I decided to do it. And then I went to Manchester 69 Theatre Company and did Arms of the Man with Tom Courtney, and that was... Those two, the Hampstead, I, I really, I started to enjoy. And um, the Arms of the Man was absolutely terrific fun. And, right. I, I, and I, I started to really get a sense of theatre. And then mm. slowly that led up to going to the National Theatre and playing Miranda and the Tempest with, with um, Sir John Gilgood. But it was this decision, I mean, it, it's a kind of, it was a kind of a breaking decision in a way, because although there was lots of television, there was nothing, as I say, there was nothing in film. And also I was of that age where you can sort of stop, you know, it could have come to an end if I yeah. didn't have somewhere to go as an actress. So I think really making that decision, decision to go into the theatre, albeit not a great first experience, was a really important one. What were the reviews like? Um, I'm sure I didn't read them. OK, deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> I'm pretty sure that it was probably not... I knew well enough that it was not a good idea to... Hmm. I think... You know, there might have been something like, you know, made a good effort or... Because <laughs> it was very much a local... It was Farnham Repertory, which was a good thing, you know, in, in terms of just being out of it. Well, I didn't do what Daniel Radcliffe did, which was to do his first play ever in the limelight, doing yeah. Equus, which is extraordinarily brave. Yeah. 
I went into a very small theatre because it was Farnham. It, it was before the, the Redgrave Theatre was built there. So it was this very small theatre. In a way, it's quite frightening because you have a lot more contact with, with audience in a small theatre than you do in a big one. Yeah. It's just a big sort of space out there. Was there a moment in that production where you froze, forgot your lines, or something awful happened? I think just... the very first night the audience were in, I just wanted to, to turn my back on them and play to the other people on the stage. Right. I was given a lot of encouragement, and I just found... I just felt that I didn't have the voice to get there. And then, of course, if you did get a little bit of a laugh, it was quite fun because it's a reminder that they're, they're there. But you explained it was a frightening experience, and yet you went on to Hampstead shortly afterwards and then on from there. So it was incredibly brave for you to take up another theatrical job, wasn't it, so soon after? Or was it a little bit like getting off a horse and falling off a horse and then getting on one again? Yeah, if one was going to do it, I think it was, it was that... I mean, I remember, certainly with the second play, I was in my, my parents' backyard helping them do that, <laughs> helping them doing some landscaping. And I'd been asked if I wanted to do ha this Hampstead Theatre Club thing. And I was saying, oh, I don't think I can. I'm saying, oh, yes, maybe I do. But it was a, a play about Australia. I remember the day so very particularly. I mean, I remember absolutely my mother saying, well, you know, you've just got to make up your mind and go one way or another. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and you're, you're bound to make the right decision with her thing. Because mm -hmm. you're bound to make the right decision. The fact is, any decision you make is the only decision you make, and that's going to affect your life. And perhaps that is, in a way, the decision. is Because is, on that day, it was... I had read this play suddenly, which was not a period piece. It was not restoration comedy. Mm. It was modern, and it was based in Australia. And I had spent, you know four months in Australia doing Walkabout and it was um, a play called Rooted by Alex Buzo and I just, I sort of got it and I thought, I think I probably could do something with this. Could you just explain how you got into movies in the first place? Oh yeah, no, you see that was by chance. I was at ballet school and Walt Disney was making a film about the Royal Danish Ballet and he wanted a young girl from Europe who wasn't Danish because he didn't think they would understand them in America <laughs> and tried various people from ballet schools in, in the UK and I was at Elmhurst and along with about four or five other girls I was auditioned and then a couple of us from the school went to screen test in Berlin and whilst I was going up for that role uh, it happened that one of the girls was called Victoria Tennant and her father I think was in an agency Anyway, I was seen by somebody who said, oh, she'd be very good in this other film with Anthony Quayle and Sylvia Sims, which was called East of Sudan. Mm -hmm. It was just one thing after another. Then I was sent along for this audition, which was a matter of me being actually picked up by the producer and the director and put back down again. And they went, oh, because I looked terribly young. I was very, very light, and they said. <laughs> and I was cast because I had to be carried around a lot by Sylvia Sims. <laughs> and I was obviously small, and I looked young, and I, played, I was cast as this Arab girl in East of Sudan. But it basically was, as I say, a lightweight role. But hmm. that was good fun. And that was, you know, I ran around in, in a little dark wig and <laughs> said things like, oh, look, elephants, and am I to die, Mr. Murchison, sir? <laughs> um, <laughs> you still remember your lines. <laughs> I do. I mean, there were very few of them on the back lot of, of Shepparton Studios. Gosh. And how different was ballet school to drama school? There was a drama training there, but the thrust of my training was ballet because, I mean, everybody at the school thought I was going to dance. And there was a quite strict dancing teacher there, uh, Helen Fisher, who was the head of the dancing. 
Mm. And I remember her dividing people up and saying, do you want to act or do you want to dance? And I, I sort of put myself into the dance side because I was so terrified of her. Mm. But in truth, I, I sort of knew that I would never be a dancer. Mm. Much as I love, I still love ballet. I love modern ballet more than anything. And I think it's wonderful. But it's like an athlete. I spotted the fact that you are either going to go for being a prima ballerina, and I hadn't got, I knew I hadn't got the staying power to do that, to be a soloist. Being in the chorus all the time seemed to me not really satisfying. I obviously must have had something very ambitious in me in, in terms of thinking. Then also, how long does that life last? It doesn't mm. last a great deal of time. As I say, as an, it's an athletic thing. You have to work every minute on your the, the physical side of it. You know, your extension is never enough. Your your leap in the air is never enough. There's never enough pirouettes that you can do. You, you're never you're never finding that you're good enough. You're always pushing it. I love the, dis, the the discipline of that training at the ballet school, mm. but I just decided I wasn't going to do that. But by the same token. We did drama at school, and when it came to the stage plays, I just was not good at standing on the stage, remembering lines and, and, and having an audience. And I was not cast in, in roles. I didn't have, for a stage, I didn't have a performance reflex. When you're on stage, you have to want to perform in front of an audience. When you're in front of a camera, what was, what was easy for me was, as I say, it was like a child would make believe. It was very easy for me to enter yeah. into the belief of something, and I still find that easy. I find it very easy to, to, you know, to cut the camera out, to cut everything out, and just be with the person that one's talking to in a scene. In fact, it's really off-putting if, you, if you're on a scene, in a scene and you don't make contact with the other person. I've worked with mm. actors who don't like kind of making contact, talking mm. to you, as it were, and that's quite difficult. So that worked, but what I didn't learn was any theatre craft of any sort. I didn't learn about mm. voice projection. I didn't learn about breathing. I didn't learn about concentration. I didn't learn about how to create a part, you know, how to mm. shape a part, what you're going to do with it, because it's not just being real. It's actually taking your audience, whether it's film or theatre, on some kind of a journey, you hope, did to you, take them with you somewhere. Did you fancy going on to drama school as such after you left school at 17? Well, I went from Elmhurst to Arts Educational. Oh, did you? Did right. <laughs> but that was just a year. Right. And it was actually that year that I left school altogether, because what happened was I had, I did a film called I, I Start Counting, which was a major role in a thriller, and it got very good reviews, although nobody sort of remembers it. Um, <laughs> it was actually quite well, you know, at the time it was quite well sort of thought of, but that disappeared. And then I did Walkabout hmm. in Australia, and I came back from Walkabout, and I had just turned 17 when I did The Railway Children. Right. And then I thought, well, there's no point going back to school. This is what I'm going to do. And it was at that point that I realised, actually, there were no films being made. Mm. As I say, there was a lot of television, but it, it was really sort of understanding that I just hadn't really learnt the craft started to dawn on me. And this very good agent saying to me, you know, it would be a jolly good idea to do some theatre. And I think she felt that there was very much more repertory at that Stage. When you did the theatre at Farnham, you would have yeah. been pretty famous by then. Did well, I, I was 18, and Railway Children had come out, you know, just a little bit before. So, yes, I, I, I had that behind me. And I think, I'm just trying to think whether I'd done The Snow Goose as well. I think I probably had done The Snow Goose as well on television. Yeah, and had a lot of people gone to see you at Farnham, you know, because they'd seen you in these movies and loved you and 
wanted to see the, the actual girl in action, as it were. I don't think I did a lot of publicity on it. Right. So um, I didn't make a big hoo-ha about it at all. I just was using it as that experience of, of, of seeing what it was like. <clears throat> did it almost put you off acting? And Did you always pack it in and do something else? It made me think about seriously about whether that was something that was... If I couldn't do that, whether it was something I really wanted to do or not. I guess that was hence the decision then to go on and do the next play because, you know, I just had to do it. I just, I had to get on with it. Have you ever thought about what else you might have done had it, had it not if worked? If I not, I probably would have... I've always loved the visual arts and mm. I've always loved photography. And I could only think that I would have got into something in the way of um, design or ph- photography or something of that nature. Yeah. But instead, you've become one of our most consistent, hard-working actresses. Always working. And uh, you must be very, very proud of the consistency with which you've worked. Because so many people are out of work for years. I know, I know. I feel extraordinarily, extraordinarily lucky. And, and the one thing I perhaps <coughs> would only just pat myself on the back about is that if there's an opportunity there, I take it. And I think that's the most important thing. You know, things come up in one's life and I just think if it's something that you want you just have to go for it Mm. but having said that I also think that the opportunities that have come that I've I've had have been wonderful ones I mean there's a hell of a lot that I've not got you know I I remember going from school for for um, Juliet in Zeffirelli's Romeo and Juliet and screen testing for that and got the the vial stuck down the front of my dress and Mm. (laughs) (laughs) it didn't work at all Mm. for doing the poison speech and there's, there's masses of things, there's disappointments all along the way, but there's also, you know, just the people I've worked with and the films themselves. I mean, Railway Children is an extraordinary film. I mean, yep. Lionel Jeffries actually really made an extraordinary classic. I mean, Walkabout was an extraordinary thing to work on, and is a, is a beautiful film. Um, American Werewolf um, came up, really, when I, first, when I first went to America, I met John Landis and his wife, Deborah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and he talked... Uh, then about making American Werewolf, and then that came up, and that was great. And there was, you know, other television things. Interesting. So yes, it's been, it's been good. And, but uh, but I've, I've never felt, I've, interestingly enough, I've never felt oh anywhere in my life oh that's it, one's made, and you just sort of just carry on. Mm. You always finish a piece of work, going oh what happens now, what's mm. next? And I think a lot of actors do feel that. You sort of have to, you you have to expand. You know, you need you've got to do other things. How have you felt about theatre over the years? Has that been your least favourite discipline in acting or whatever? I like theatre. I took a big break from theatre when I was married and had my son mm-hmm. because it's quite hard to you know, rehearse all day and then be away in the evenings and all that. It doesn't really work. It doesn't mm. fit in very well. So I, didn't, I took a break from it there. And then did the first thing I did was actually Peter Pan right. at <coughs> the National with um, Ian McKellen. Yeah. And that was perfect because my son was seven at that point. And he, so he had sort of a magic element. I was also in repertory, which my mum was off and on and not there every night. What's been your um, most memorable moment on stage in a theatre? Have you had any bizarre incidents or whatever? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, there's, there's all the way through from... I mean, working with, working with Gilgood when I got to the National when I was 21, mm. that was... We were in repertory doing that. There's all sorts of stories about working with him. He was, he was amazing. I mean, the, 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 when we had our, our very first... Uh, run through just before we were about to open and we were pushing it very very late at night and Ferdinand and Miranda are meant to arrive magically on stage and in fact we were under the the, the, the stage and the trap door was to open and we were to be pushed up onto the stage 
and Sir John Gielgud gave the line, which was to cue the trapdoor opening, but nobody looked, and he actually happened to be on the trapdoor oh. and fell six feet straight down in front of Rupert and I and uh, sat bolt upright on the table, got up and, and walked away. I mean, he, got, he looked at us and said, are you all right, Jenny? Are you all right, Rupert? And, and, and then walked off. Yes. But apparently, um, Peter Hall was sort of ashen when he saw him disappear, as you might imagine. And in recent times, we've had the curse of mobile phones going off and people actually filming oh, yes. you with mobile phones. Code, I remember there was somebody in the front row who, um, who sat there with a, a crinkly bag in her lap. And um, Derek Jacobi and I had a scene at the front of the stage. And I could see he was getting quite disturbed by this person because they, they were just watching, and they were kind of, but they kept crinkling the bag in their lap. You know, they were quite excited about what was going there all the time. They kept on rapping, it was just going... <laughs> entire time. So I tried, I tried looking rather pointedly at this person. Yeah. <laughs> and their lap, hoping they would get it, but they never did. But people, yeah, you've got mobile phones, you've got sweet rappers, you've got people talking, you've got all sorts of things. People don't realise often in the theatre just how much you hear. But the, the thing on stage is also to realise that there's an awful lot of audience who are not aware of those other things, so you can't make a point of it. Yeah. You just kind of have to ride over it and, uh, and keep the rest of the audience with you. <laughs> no, it's lovely. I mean, theatre is actually... Once, once I had gone... There was, there was Farnham, as I say, then there was Hampstead. I started to like the whole thing of it. And I realised that other actors were hugely nervous. Nicky Henson was in, in the play I did at Hampstead, and he, was, he, he used to get very, um, uh, very, very nervous. Uh, and then Arms of the Man was the first time on tour, and I travelled around different theatres, and Tom Courtney was hugely generous as an actor on stage, and that was lovely. And I started then get to get the whole... I actually then understood... I started to understand for the first time what it was like playing in front of an audience, and I, I loved the rehearsal process and the performance process. Do you have any superstitions backstage? Do you, you know that? The, uh... I hope that no one's ever going to tell me any superstitions because you kind of you you take them on board and you, you say no, it's absolutely ridiculous. Of course, it's absolute rubbish. Um, but unfortunately, you, there's always some part of your mind that oh, why did that person do that? Or oh, they shouldn't have whistled or whatever. <laughs> Even though you know what the where it comes from, you know the whistling. Do you know about the whistling backstage? Yes, uh, yeah, and and the uh, Scottish play as well. Yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, do you know why it is though? No, do tell. The me. whistling is purely because in the old days when they didn't have signals, you know, lights coming on, little flashing lights but, uh, backstage for people to do curtain falls and yeah. all the rest of it, there would be whistles. Oh, okay. People would actually whistle and the curtain would drop or they would whistle and, you know, mm. just make a, a sound. Right. So whistling backstage was not a good idea because you mm. might actually make the curtain drop on somebody. <laughs> Macbeth apparently was just purely because it was such a popular play that if you were in something and someone started talking about Macbeth, right. it was because your play was going to be pulled, up, pulled off. So they would be putting Macbeth on, which would get the audience in. And uh, lots of actors talk about the sort of boarding houses that they stay in while they're performing in theatres. Yes. Um, but you've, you were very famous and successful very early on. Have you always stayed in nice digs where the no, others have to slum no, it? No, well, I mean, the digs are fine, but um, no, I've stayed in all sorts of rum places, both, you know, when one's filming and, and when we're doing theatre. I mean, theatre, there are, when you go, well, it used to be, you know, you'd, you'd get a list of the, of the digs of the places that you could go. And, and, and people would say, oh, yes, you know, that they're, they're very good. That place in Manchester is excellent. You should mm. try and get in there. But, but, I mean, even when one's filming, though, when I did Walkabout, we stayed in 
everything from sort of old tubercular hospitals that have sort of come defunct in the middle mm-hmm. of nowhere, funny little motels, and, and just camped. What about theatre ghosts? Have you ever had any theatre ghost experiences? No. I mean, the, the, nearest, the nearest to that is a rather peculiar experience, which is that I hadn't... When I did Equus quite recently... I got quite nervous. I hadn't really... There had been another break in doing theatre. And it was a big, you know, West End production with Richard Griffiths. And and Mm -hmm. there was a lot of kind of attention on it. And it's a lovely play. And Peter Schaffer was there. Because I'd done the film years before, so it was really lovely. It was great great to do. But it suddenly came to the um, first night in front of an audience. And they actually... It was... was, In many ways, it was a terrific experience because they were very giving audience. But I was... So nervous before starting. And it's interesting, prior to having a child, one's nerves go in a slightly different direction, which is nerves can kind of boost you. But uh, the doctor explained to me, sometimes there are changes in your body, which just means that if you're not careful, hmm. you know, the nerves can actually go in a different direction. It kind of suppresses you. Hmm. It's not, not always good. So do you throw up when you're nervous? Uh, it, it, that's the point. You don't, what you don't want to do is to get to that stage. Yeah. So I would do... I, I made sure that I did some yoga exercises, some yeah. breathing exercises, eat at the right time before so that you've got something in your stomach. Otherwise, you, you really do feel terribly nervous. And I did all of this. But the thing was, I was very nervous. And we were in the Gielgud Theatre. And when I walked off stage at the end, as it all finished, I thought, oh, God, that's the first night. Oh. So I opened a door, and there was a life-size photograph of John Gielgud smiling. And he was looking directly into the camera. And I opened this door, and I suddenly was confronted with this person, just smiling at me. And it seemed to be saying, there you go, isn't that fun? Isn't that what it's all about? Yeah, how magnificent. (laughs) And it it was very touching, because it brought me back to what I didn't tell you, the other Gielgud story, was that when I was doing doing, um, The Tempest with him, he never cared about going up on his lines ever. I mean, if he went up on his lines, you didn't really notice it. He would just say, line, and carry on. Uh, and then you didn't know he had or not. Because yes. um, his premise was, it was, you know, that it was not about learning the li- you know, remembering the lines. It was about delivering something else. But I did go through one evening where I was, I had a classic. We hadn't been on for a while. And I thought a line wasn't going to be there. And I literally went and got the play and had it in the wings beside me and was reading things before going on stage. Oh, gosh. Which is not... No. No, it's, a, it's, it's a horrible feeling. You yeah. think it's all going to go from you. Yeah. Purely to do the concentration. Yeah. I've done the play masses of times. There's nothing, you know, there's nothing really wrong. And at the end of the play, Gilgood said to me, um, are you all right, dear? Is, is there something wrong? And I said, um, no, I just was terrified I was going to forget the line. She said, oh, don't worry. If I see you're sinking, I'll throw you a line. And that's sort of what I got out of him years and years and years yeah. later. And it was like a ghost. Oh. It was in as much as it was an absolute presence of somebody it was an absolute memory of somebody who totally enjoyed what they were doing and who gave me a real sense of being on stage and what that was about. And that was in, when you were doing Equus? Equus. Yeah. Was, yeah. So it was, and it was the Gilgood Theatre, and there he was. Whenever you've done anything in the theatre, they often put underneath your name credits things. Do you get annoyed when they're still going on about the railway children, something you did in 1970 uh, in the last few decades? Have you kind of thought, oh, for goodness sake, why do you have to keep mentioning that? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? I don't really, in many ways, it, it, hasn't, it has not affected my work in as much as when we did The Railway Children, it was successful, but it disappeared for a decade. And mm. during that decade, I went to America. Then what I hadn't realised 
whilst I was in America, is it started, it was, it was on DV, it was put onto a video, mm. plus the fact that it started to be shown kind of every other year at Christmas. It became yeah. one of those things that emerged, and it still goes yeah. on being shown. Yeah. So when I came back from the States 17 years later, people were referring to it because, of course, it was very present, and it was, the, the, it was something they could hook my name to. I suppose it could have been American Werewolf, but it, but it hadn't got the same sort of... I mean, railway children, a lot of people in the UK both know that story. They, no one in America knew it at all. Nobody knew the book, nobody knew the film, nobody knew it. So it was a surprise. And, and I can understand in a way. I mean, it, it's, it, it, it's interesting. And then I, I also played Mother, which I thought would actually get yeah. people to realise I wasn't only Bobby. And yes. I thought it was a nice sort of um, circular thing about actually playing mm. my own my own mother um, growing up. And I do remember someone saying to me, I can't believe you did that. It's so sort of disruptive. And I said, I said in what way? And I said, well, you know, I, so we see you as, as, as Bobby. And I said, yeah. well, yes, but I'm not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, yeah. I'm an actress. That's the whole point. I'm, just, <laughs> I'm not. So it's, it's, it's peculiar, but it doesn't, it doesn't upset me. I mean, I, it, it would be nice if people, you know, I think Call the Midwife has become so popular that people, people might say Call the Midwife as opposed to Bobby and then recognise I'm actually, you know, somewhat older. For me, my generation of, of men, uh, whenever we hear the Van Morrison song Moondance, we think uh. of you in the shower in American Werewolf. <laughs> Do you get lots of guys mentioning that to you? Um, it, it is a certain generation of men. Yes. Of, um, yes. <laughs> um, and it, it's very sweet. And it's, it's, it's funny because, I mean, Alex Price, the nurse Alex Price, was a wonderful role to play. And she's so kind of together and so not me in a way and so mm. kind of everything's so easy and wonderful and and I can understand that fantasy completely, but it's got nothing to do with it. <laughs> but it is, it, you know, it was a good film, and I, and, I, and I also think there's something about a nurse's uniform that obviously is quite oh, yes. everybody's fantasy. <laughs> Are you a Van Morrison fan? I love that music, yeah. yeah. I, like, I, I thought the music, actually, for American Werewolf was terrific all the way through, but yes, yeah. I, Van Morrison I loved. And, yeah, that's good. Um, yeah. What have you got coming up now, work-wise? Well, I'm in the middle of doing second series called The Midwife. Right. Brilliant. So I've got my habit on again. Mm-hmm. And uh, theatre at all coming up? I would like to look at some more, actually. Mm. We're doing some more theatre now. What would um, be your dream theatre role, do you think, now? Goodness. Modern play, mm. not classical play. So I'd like to find something modern. Almeida, Royal Court, Donmar. We've got, oh, Chocolate Factory. I mean, there's so, we've got so many good small theatres. Really, I think we have some really exciting theatre in London now. I'd love to work with Nihai, actually. I think they're extraordinary. And dare I mention you've got a big birthday in December. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> what are your plans? I'm sort of... It's funny, I'm somewhere between being terribly excited about it. It's great, because I love birthdays. And, you know, it's just before Christmas, and, and that's all great fun. There is such... I don't know, 50 meant absolutely nothing to me whatsoever. 40 meant nothing to me. 30... It, they're all very good ages. Yeah. 60 has a lot of connotations with it because of the whole retirement thing that people start to start to think about retirement in yeah. that next decade, you know what I mean? And it brings with it, for women, uh, a, a very particular view of what they're like. So you know, there's one friend of mine that says, don't say your age to anybody. And mm. I say, well, you know, it's, it's a bit hard to take it back when people already know what one's age is. Yeah. My view of it is that I don't... The difficulty is I don't see myself as anything beyond 35. Yeah, none of us do, I don't think. I know, it sort of stops. And, you know, touch wood, I've kept fit, and I just feel exactly the same. Well, you look exactly the same. 
Well, I'm a... not sure. I don't think people flirt with me in quite the same way. Oh. <laughs> well, you're married, that's why. Um, or maybe it's that I've got a habit on, they don't. Um, <laughs> but, yeah, I don't know. I, 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 I'm, I'm ambiguous about it. I, I, on, on the one side, it's, it's terrific, because I just feel mm. good, and I want to have a real, really good celebration with my family and some very close friends, and I'm, I'm going to go away somewhere which is just completely different, because I think... I think, the, I think the most important thing in one's life, and it's something that we, we have today, which perhaps they didn't view things in the same way, is that it's constantly being refreshed, mm. and that one's part of a new world. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah. it's, there's, there are new things happening. There should be new things happening in one's life. I mean, I want to drop dead doing things as opposed to slowly fizzle out. Yeah, hopefully not for another good 40 years, though. Well, that would be all right, but, yeah. you know, you don't know when. But, I mean, certainly it would... It, it would you, you, you do want to be active, you want to be an active. And my son's godmother, he's got a godmother who's in her 80s now, and she's working, she's working editing photographs of the magazine, she's always mm-hmm. been involved with photography, she's totally vital, and I think it was actually 10 years ago, um, a little over 10 years ago, when she had her 70th birthday, her children rang and said, you know, mum's got a big birthday coming up, and I honestly thought they were talking about 60. And then I said to her, look, I want to look at your passport when you come to England, because I'm sure someone's made a mistake. She said, well, what, what, what do you mean? What, are you going to treat me any differently? And I suddenly realized, of course, it did create yeah. in my mind, knowing that she was 70, a kind of, oh, my God, is she more fragile? Or, yeah. It was just an idea, and it is an idea. Yeah, yeah. It isn't anything more than that. And then when you're faced with the person and their vitality and what they're doing and all the rest of it, you just talk to the person in their mind. You don't talk to, to their body, particularly if they're physically very active and, and up for things. And uh, how much difference has the OBE made to your life? Well, at present, it hasn't made any difference at all. Really? The oh. letters arrive with OBE at the end, <laughs> uh, which is very nice. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's, it's a real kind of honour, and it feels to me also like a responsibility because it came with work that I've done with the charities. And I feel, oh, goodness, I've really got to, you know, it's something that... It, it, in a way, having the OB is very, a very good thing in terms of the charity because it, it makes people realise that you are actually serious about what you're doing. So it opens doors when you're trying to, to get things done. Does it? It does in a way. You know, if, if, if I'm working with St Giles Trust and it's Jenny Agatha OB as opposed to Jenny Agatha, they go, oh, because it, the, the, it came from the charitable sector and therefore I'm serious mm. about doing it as opposed to not. Do you know what I mean? Has it got yeah, a little yeah. bit of... It's got that with it. It's a, it's a huge honour. I mean, I think yeah. it is terrific. I mean, mostly, when one looks through the list of people who have been given honours, and you realise, not the people that are well-known, but the people that aren't known, what they've been given for, and the work they've done, you think, wow, to be put in a category like that is just fantastic. I do realise in the work, work for me, working in the charitable sector, there's a hell of a lot of people that work voluntarily. And I work voluntarily, but... They do it all the time. I do, I do it when I can because mm. I'm doing something else. So I do it when I can. And I've only ever involved myself in things that I really care about. So in many ways, it's, it's sort of self-serving. Um, and how, how much do you aspire to being Dame Jenny one day? It's a nice title, isn't it? <laughs> it is. Um... <laughs> that, that actually comes... You know, nobody, nobody says to you um, your name with the initials afterwards. But they do say Dame, I guess that was very... I must say, when I, when, I, when I did get the OBE, I got the call sheet the next day and it was Jenny Agatha OBE on it. Really? It did make me laugh a lot. It was very good. I yeah. mean, it hasn't, they haven't continued with that, but, but I had the one day with the Jenny Agatha OBE on it. <laughs> do they curtsy a bit lower now for you? <laughs> yes, yeah, people see, say, how should they address me? I said, with a, with a bit of a bow and a curtsy and a 
with the pirouette. <laughs> now, I think you'd be brilliant in Downton Abbey. Have you been up for that at all? No, no, but that's... I don't know. I'm sure that, you know, it would have been discussed at some point. You know, sometimes these things come up and people just automatically put you into a certain area and just go, no, I don't know. Though. It would have been lovely. But, I mean, I'm, I, lo- I also play, I love playing Sister Julianne, which is... is yeah, absolutely. But, I mean, yes, one's always looking for other things. As I say, I'd, I'd love a really good modern drama. I mean, I think there's some fantastic modern writers. Isn't you it? You write. Uh, uh, I, I do, yeah. I'm just trying to write my first book at the moment. Are yeah. you? Yeah, maybe that'll be adapted one day. Adapted into something. Well, write a, you know, make sure there's a really good woman in it. Oh, well. You're doing fiction. <laughs> there fiction. is. Actually, I'm doing a sort of something autobiographical, and I'm writing fiction, my first novel at the moment, yeah. Are you so, writing them in parallel? I am, because it really helps with writer's block, and it's also two things I'm very passionate about, so yeah. so that's what I'm doing, yeah. I can imagine that, because if, if something's biographical in some way, you, you've got, you can absolutely focus on it, yeah. and then let your imagination go for the, for the other one. Absolutely. I mean, in many ways, I'm sure fictional writing draws all the time on, on episodes that are, are real. I mean, mm. you've got to be real people in there, and real events, and real things, just turned around a little bit. Have you written a novel yet, or I, your autobiography? No, I have huge... When I write, this is, this is where having a bad education comes in. I see my son write, and he can just write something. And it's absolutely what he wants to say. I feel... It's like even when I talk to you, I mean, I jump all over the place. So if I've got something to say, I write it down, and I go, oh, God, this doesn't make any sense. I have to rewrite it and rewrite it and rewrite it. So to do anything takes a hell of a long time. And if I'm required to write something, uh, I will do it. And I, I like to get it absolutely right. But I have a huge respect for writers because, you know, that discipline of, of being absolutely clear, of getting all those things down, of, of being, you know, of getting that blank sheet of paper in front of you, but, but getting that and then making it clear and, and making it entertaining and making it free and making it sound as though it's just come out of your head. You know, it's got to have that freshness about it as well. I mean, it's, it's, it, it's, a, it's a gift and an art and, and something that I don't have. But... You know, I enjoy. You could write your autobiography, though. I've, yes, I mean, you know, people do sometimes say that because the drop of the hat, you know, an actor's writing mm. a, an autobiography. The trouble is, as soon as you start thinking in the past, you get very caught up with it. And I would prefer to stay with what's going on than start to dwell on, on what's been. But people like me are always dwelling on what's been in your life, aren't they? I, spo- I suppose so, yes, and mm. that's enough. Talking of books, have you read this controversial book that everyone's talking about, The Fifty Shades of Grey? No, I've not read it. I'm told I should read instead Fifty. Well, um, Fifty Sheds, I think there is. That's Fifty Sheds of Grey. Yeah. And someone said, "Why not read? I was going to say Fifty Huts of Grey. Yeah. Fifty Sheds of Grey. No, I've not. Should I read it? Oh God, I don't know. Too many disappointments. Everybody goes, "Oh God, it's really. I could only get halfway through it." Yeah. I haven't read it, so it's not for me anyway. And, and the trouble is, that you get, people get fascinated even when they hear it. You know, they hear about mm. something and they want to go. There's so many other things I want to read. Actually, there's so much good literature coming out. And how are you enjoying the Olympics, being a, a London well, girl? Well, I watched. You know, we're hearing it all the time on set because <coughs> people have got the radios on, so we hear every time there's a gold or a medal or something's happening, and there's a lot of whooping and shouting. <laughs> on also, some people have got little screens on on set. So you can see little bits and pieces. But I did actually solidly watch the Saturday evening that we got all those goals. I thought that was the most... And I knew three people that were there. It was the most exciting... It was exciting television. It was exciting sport. I thought it was absolutely brilliant. I've not been a huge fan of the idea of having the Olympics here. I think that... I think we've done an... I think an extraordinary job has been done. Uh, I 
with a way when the um, the opening night ceremony. Oh, from everything I've read about that, I think it was extraordinarily well executed, and I think that Danny Boyle and their team did a, an amazing job. Uh-huh. My sister-in-law has worked as a host, oh. so she's been doing her hosting job at one of the arenas, and and I just think you know all of that side's been beautifully taken care of. Just in terms of what the the British have achieved, I mm. think it's been fantastic, and I mm, think yeah. you know. It, Clearly, that Saturday that I was watching, did you watch that? I did, yeah, absolutely I mean, It was as though the feeling carried those people through to the end. Yeah. You know, those two, those two runs were phenomenal. I mean, you couldn't believe your eyes. I mean, you were screaming at home. <laughs> <laughs> it was lovely. I mean, really great. Couldn't your sister-in-law get you in? No, no. She moved around a bit in, in terms of places. She did. Um, she was doing ping pong at one point <laughs> and the wrestling and stuff. It's not particularly my my scene. No. I, I sort of wish I had. I, I rather fatalistic thought. Oh well, I'll never get in chicken and just didn't didn't mm. do it. Since when I thought well, I really should have actually tried to get in there. Um, everybody who's been has said it's been the most extraordinary experience. Did you go? Um, no, I've been watching on the telly, but uh, in no. a way it's better on the telly because you can see from start to finish. But we had the cycling go past where I'm staying, and uh, but it, it just whizzes past you, and then you don't see the outcome. I want to see yeah. the whole thing. Well, uh, where, where are you? I'm living in Cobham at the moment, staying oh, in Cobham right, and they had the, oh, they had, yes, of course, because they had that course all past there. But I wanted to ask you, because um, I was born in Shepton Mallet. I didn't realise you were from Taunton. Yeah. So you're I was born a Zimmerzet girl. I, I, I am, by, by, um, in terms of. I'm made of, of West Country stuff. Right. But I left there very young. But I, I still have, I do have a feeling for it. And I, Taunton has played its part in my life, going backwards and forwards through Taunton all the time, because we have a house down in Cornwall, so mm. we always used to stop off at Taunton when we drove down when my son was little. I have a fondness for it, I don't know why. Yeah, it's a nice county. And you... It's a good county. Lloyd Webber's making a musical about the Profumo affair now. Oh, is he? And you'd have known a bit about that, having lived at Clifton for a year. Well, yes. I mean, they had some of the photographs and things of Christine Keeter there and drawings from the doctor and stuff. And and the pool is no longer the same pool that Christine Keeter swam in. Oh, isn't it? The garden is there and and things, yeah. So I did know a little bit about it. How do Clifton feel about the whole thing? Are they a bit ashamed of it or are they proud of it? Well, it's rather separated. I don't think that um, Astor himself would have been too happy about you know, publicising it and having, um, you know, Christine Keeler dinners or anything. No. <laughs> Which probably would have sold quite well. <laughs> they, yeah, they may do now. <laughs> <laughs> but, but um, no, because it was always played very low-key. Yeah. Because, you know, it was not, it's not a great part of the, of the house's history. No. Um, but it's still an interesting part of the house's history. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. The, the doctor's house down on the, um, down on the river as well, because all those little cottages are owned by the... The trust, actually. One of them is, is, is used by the hotel. Oh, OK. But the others are owned by the trust. There's no blue plaque up saying Christine Keeler slept here. No, but as I say, I think there is a photograph of her in the men's loo. Right. Oh, is there? <laughs> Not the ladies' loo. <laughs> Not in the ladies' loo. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I just want to quickly ask you, your mum was an entertainment organiser. My father. Oh, your father was? Yes. OK, right. It's a lovely idea that my mum was. Right. Um, no, because I don't think she liked it at the business at all. Um, then my father ran, um, he was the live entertainment organiser for what was called CSE, mm. Service Entertainment. And we, that's, we lived, when we lived in Cyprus, we went to Cyprus and that's where he did the job for the Middle East. He took care of uh. entertainment for the Middle East. Then he came back to England and did it kind of worldwide, you know, taking things out to the Falklands, taking things 
Toby for the work that he did, particularly for the Falklands, um, people out there on shows and, and all of that. Are your parents still with us? My father is. My mother passed away a few years back. But they were obviously keen for you to go into show business, unlike some... No, my, I don't, it's one of the things, in a way, that was beneficial to me, is that they didn't really worry one way or another. It, mm. it wasn't peculiar to them, because my father had been involved with the entertainment world. By the same token, they weren't impressed by it at all. Mm. So they didn't think, ooh, this is a lovely thing to be doing. So they had a very, um, very kind of level view of it. You know, if it was going to happen, it was going to happen. If it wasn't, it wasn't. I mean, they were very supportive. I think they were very particularly supportive of things like when I went to America. Right. I mean, if I think, you know, now my son's 21, would I want him to go miles away? Hopefully I'd have learned from my parents who just said, yes, fine, you must go, that's what you want to do. What does your son do then? Or what's he going to do? Um, he's, he's studying medicine. Just finally, what are your sort of ambitions here on in? In terms of work, I don't know what... I would love to get a... a you know, I, what I'd love to do is, is to have a really, really good film role again, which I've not done for ages, mm. and find really something good. I, there's, I would love to also make this... But probably much more on the production side, the story about Nesbitt, which has always been hanging at the back of my mind and, and started on the script, you know, over a decade ago. Yes. Um, but I think it's a very good story. And it mm. touches on my life in, in lots of peculiar ways. You know, this person um, at the turn of the century. Because when, as you get older, you realise, you know, time kind of telescopes because it has a completely different meaning. When you're in your 20s, you don't really think about... Um, you don't think about time in quite the same way because your, your memories aren't... They're only of the, of the things that are surrounding you then. And you don't even think very much about the future and what the future holds. But, you know, once you've got into four decades you start to realise how some things repeat themselves, how close you are to other times and events in history, how mm. those events in history actually affect you, how, um, you know, things come around, the way people are. I mean, there's, there's a lot of things you start to kind of understand uh, in a completely different way. And the thing I wanted to do on Nesbitt was very much about um, Nesbitt at a certain part in her life. With three generations, her, her children and another child being born and just looking at a slice of life and, and, and the Edwardian period of time where it's the beginning of, of really what we are today in many ways. But also they believed in, they sort of believed that well, the world would be perfect. And I think that we now realize the world will never, ever. They believed in utopia. If you think of many writers at that time, um, H.G. Wells, all of them were writing about a perfect society. Um, but of course, we know with the two world wars, one now knows that that's never going to be possible. And, and so, in a way, what one's looking at is that we still, as people, as, as a society, I think, are not grown up. We still don't take responsibilities. Um, you can see, I, I think we've got to face quite a lot of difficulties in the next few years. And I just think that, you know, there's a, there's a, the journey's still to go. I think we're still hanging on to those kind of, someone else is going to take care of us in mm -hmm. some way. Do you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and that was that Nesbitt, just as a person, clearly functioned wonderfully in the imagination. She wrote terrific stories, mainly for children, because that's where her imagination was. But she didn't take on the responsibilities of her, uh, certainly of her society. I mean, she, if you think that she lived at the time of the suffragettes and all of that, but she mm. didn't, was not interested in their cause. Although she, she managed her own way of being an individual woman, but she didn't recognise how important it was to... You know, to do something about that. What do you think she'd have thought of the Railway Children movie? I think she 
should have liked it. I think yeah. she'd have been rather. I think she'd also have been absolutely. She's. She would have been childish enough just to absolutely enjoy the fact that it was on celluloid and you could see it on a screen in front of her. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I think she'd have been very taken with that. It's impossible um, not to like you, it. To really. Record it and that and replay it. Uh, and uh, were you ever asked to be a Bond girl? No. Did you no, ever that fancy never came up. Did you ever fancy that? Do you think? Hmm. I don't know. I mean, on, on the whole, there were there were few Bond girls that actually, when you look at it, were in, were that interesting. Yeah. As roles, they were a little bit there for adornment. Yeah. I think they were better. I think Judy Dench had the best role there. Oh yeah, indeed, fantastic. Yeah, perhaps you could take over from her then. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> sure. I mean, that's Tessa was so good from that point of view. It was a, not a similar kind of character in that vague world of the spy world. Thank you very much, and All I look right. forward to the next series of Midwife. <laughs> yes. Thank you so much. Lovely. Thank you. Take care. Bye bye.